would say. And, I, and I'd read sometimes out loud in a church somewhere and be like, not jot or tittle, I mean not an iota. And, cause, and maybe some of you, if you're seasoned in life and were around when, uh, and you were uh, around long enough to only have the King James Bible, um, you might got used to the jots and tittles, right? Or you might have gotten used to just certain phrases that we hang our minds on. Do you know what I mean by that? And so I say all that because, um, look, uh, a few weeks ago I mentioned sort of that the ESV has been a, a good translation for me. I just thought it'd be helpful, if you guys are keen, um, just to try it out, you know, see if, if you're able to grab one or put it on your phone. Um, the NIV is fine, and some of you use the other translations that are out there. Um, I wouldn't recommend a paraphrase. Um, maybe if you want to use that as sort of a supplementary thing to your Bible reading itself. But, um, yeah, so look, we're, we're, we're excited to try the English Standard Version. I, personally, I'm biased towards it. I think there's a lot of good... Uh, good poetry that's retained, particularly when you read the Psalms, and there's a, it's very it's it's closer to the original Greek and Hebrew than say some other translations. It's not a perfect translation, and saying that it is a translation. But if you guys are keen, that'd be cool to go ahead and have that a, give it a go. Unless you guys are like, we disdain that translation. You know, let's go back to the you know, the other one that we've used in the past or whatever, which actually would be the, if you're going to be, if you're going to pull that card, that's supposed to be the King James because that's the one that we've used in the past here. So anyway, um, look, if you want to use your NIV and you're like, I am an Australian and I have the freedom and I am and, you know, this, that, okay, fine. Be a rebel and, you know, be your own autonomous person and use the NIV because that's, it's interesting how the capitalistic Western society creates weird people like that. So, um, it is. It's yeah. Anyway, whole other. That's not my sermon today, but um, but you know, in this capitalistic Western society, we have uh, lots of byproducts, right? We get to go to the cinemas, and we we have um, we have things like Netflix, and we um, yeah, we, we we have all kinds of 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 great resources that are out there and conveniences. I wonder if you've ever gone to the cinemas with a friend before and or you watch a film on Netflix and you're able to discover, you're able to discern who the villain or the bad guy is or the bad girl is or whatever. And you're and in that moment, once you discover it, you're particularly hard on the other characters in the film who don't see what you see. Right? Don't let him in the house. Can't you see? He's the bad guy. Right? Don't go in the car with her. She'll kill you. Do you know what I'm saying? Mean by that? And maybe it may be you're one of those guys where you're yelling at the screen. It's like, hey, look, bro, she can't. She can't hear you. You know, it's just a movie. Chill out. Um, or hopefully not in the cinemas, right? But. I say all of that because the same can be true when we read the New Testament. When we think of the Pharisees, we know them as hypocrites and failures, right? Because we know the whole story. But the, the, likely the majority of people in Jesus' day would, would have thought of these guys as, as the good guys, as upright and moral guardians of Jewish righteousness, they were the experts in obeying the law. They were, they were the very epitome of law keepers. 
So when we read Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, which says that your righteousness must go far beyond the scribes and the Pharisees, we might initially hear that and say, too easy. They're the hypocrites. What's the problem with that? That's what we might think. Because you and I, the only time that we ever read about these guys is in the Gospels, right? And every time we read them, they're in a negative light, correct? So we, we're like the people watching the movie, as it were. But put yourself back in the first century. And what Jesus is saying would have seemed impossible, if not ludicrous. These guys were the pros at keeping the law. How on earth am I supposed to beat these guys out of their own game, as it were? That's impossible. Last week we learned that what if Jesus is after them? Remember verse 20? Your righteousness must surpass. What Jesus is after is not just external righteousness, but internal. The fact that God sees and cares about our heart is really the foundation or key idea that motivates the Sermon on the Mount. Did you catch that? God looks upon the heart. And Jesus gives six examples of heart righteousness, which are all earmarked. They're easy to see. They're all earmarked with this phrase. You have heard that it was said, I say to you. There's six of them. Today, I'd like to concentrate on just two. Two of them that actually come out of the Ten Commandments, the famous Ten Commandments, and that is lust, that is anger and lust. That's the order we're going to look at it. Anger and then lust. Now, just ponder this with me for a moment. I was thinking about this this week. What's frightening about anger and lust is that you can commit one or both of these sins fairly often and nobody would know. You could hate someone in your heart. And no one would ever know about it. In theory, you could regularly lust and nobody would ever know. And so we can deceive ourselves and begin to think of these sins as not, well, it's not, they're not that really big of a deal, right? Because you're not physically doing anything to anybody. You're not hurting anybody. So it becomes sort of a, a dirty little secret that you have, sort of a, a sin that you have for yourself that nobody knows about, that you struggle with. And it's easy to hide because ultimately it's your thought life, you see. And so what's frightening about that, I say that's frightening because in our text before us, Jesus says that either one of these sins, if not repented of, if not done away with, will drag you down to hell. That's really intense. So our inner thoughts matter to God. 
who we are at the end of the day, let's call it our wholeness, our whole self, our whole being, matters to God. Which means there should be a consistency between our affections and our actions. Hope you can feel the weight of that. So let's pray and let's unpack this heart kind of righteousness when it relates to anger and lust. Lord, how many stories are in this room and people's struggles? Only you know. So, Father, we ask that in your mercy and in your grace that you would bring light to dark areas, that you would convict hearts that have been content with sins that are going to be judged, if not repented of. Lord, would you work in powerful waves. Spirit, illuminate your word, we ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we think about the idea of anger, have you ever noticed that for whatever reason, we tend to gloss this over as simply ordinary or not that big of a deal? We even have today polite euphemisms to describe our anger, right? Um, I just, you know what? I lost my temper. I have a temper. I don't know where it is. I lost it. It's gone. It ran away. I just lost my temper, which communicates this idea of, look, it's not my own. It's just something that kind of got out of control. It's not who I am. It's not me. Or how about this? I was just blowing off steam. I was just blowing off steam. That expression comes from the days of steam engines, right? In order to prevent the engine from actually exploding, you'd have to let out some steam, some gas. You would literally have to do that in order so it wouldn't explode. And when we say that, we imply that anger is a natural and perhaps necessary outlet for our emotions. I'm, I'm just venting. I'm just venting. You know, I've got all these feelings. They're pent up. And they've got to go somewhere, right? So, whoop, just let them out. Or you're like the you know, cartoons with the smoke coming out of their ears of the characters. Like, whoop. How about this one? She really pushes my buttons. <laughs> He really pushes. My kids really push my buttons. Yeah. Of course they do. And do you see what that suggests, though? Anger is something forced upon me by others, right? I wasn't angry. I have a button, and you pushed it. You're the reason I'm angry. And that's not the way that Jesus describes our anger at all, is it? Because in our society today, like I said, we use, we use euphemisms of some of the ones I've just listed, or in general, anger is sort of this idea that's passive. It's, it's, it's done to us. Does that make sense? We're the victims, as it were. Okay, but Jesus says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, 
And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You know, I have to be honest. At first glance, when I look at that, I'm a bit perplexed by those verses. It's, it's a bit confusing. It's a bit shocking, really, because it seems like the punishments become more severe as the paragraph moves forward. Did you catch that? First, you'll be subject to judgment. Then, you'll be liable to a high court or the Sanhedrin. And finally... If you call someone a fool or a moron, you might end up in hell. Do you see, see the progression there? It's intense. So what's happening here? What's going on? Well, in verse 20, remember, I'm, I'm going to keep pointing back to this. Verse 20 is the key, right? He says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so then I guess the question is, why was the Pharisees' type of righteousness unacceptable? I mean, they were very concerned that people obeyed the Old Testament. They rummaged through the scriptures daily in an attempt to figure out exactly how the law was to be applied, which seems like a noble and right venture to be involved in, correct? But in the process, they domesticated the law, making it something you could keep. They domesticated it, making something that was attainable. Their super tight regulations made doing the biblical thing far too difficult and morality far too easy. They were always trying to find the very minimum that God required. Essentially, they'd take what God had said and work out exactly how much they could get away with without technically sinning. So take the Sixth Commandment, for example. Thou shall not kill. They'd hear that and say, well, what does kill or murder mean? Is killing in war murder? Is self-defense murder? Is manslaughter murder? To use a contemporary illustration, is killing someone while drunk driving murder? You see, once you say you shall not murder, the Pharisaic mind looked for loopholes. They restricted the Sixth Commandment to only the physical act of homicide itself, of murder. But what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount, if you haven't seen this already, what Jesus does is widen and deepen it so that just re refraining from the act of killing someone isn't enough. We are to refrain from hating people with our words, even our inmost thoughts. The Pharisees convinced themselves and taught everyone else, well, hey, you know, as long as you haven't killed anybody, you've kept the law. But Jesus moves past this and cuts straight to the heart. Jesus is teaching us that this issue of anger or murder goes much deeper 
than what we do with our hands. It's what we do with our hearts, you see. It's much deeper than just what we do with our hands. Oh, I haven't killed anybody. Yes, but you've murdered that person in your heart. See, we don't speak, you don't hear, particularly in society today, and when people talk about their anger, oh, I'm blowing off steam, or this person pushes my buttons, but Jesus looks directly to that and says, you murdered that person in your heart. Which is why he lists three different aspects of murder, you see. Three different aspects. It's right there in the text. Anger, insult, and denunciation. Let's look at verse 21. Look with me at the very first one Jesus highlights here in verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Notice Jesus talks about being angry with a brother or a sister, which probably means a fellow disciple. It's not necessarily just a family member. It could be, but a fellow disciple. Remember, those are the people that were listening in. This is the Sermon on the Mount. The disciples are gathered here. And he, the first aspect of murder is anger itself, which one cannot help but wonder how exactly anger could be judged by a human court. How could someone say you were angry? Well, how do you know? Only God looks upon the heart, right? So, this, this is a judgment of God. But now there's a connection with this anger on the words that we use, particularly insults. Remember, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth what? Speaks, right? Jesus says, if anyone calls a fellow disciple, Raka, Raka, likely an Aramaic word, which has the idea of insulting a person's intelligence, kind of like calling them a nitwit or a numbskull, right? That they'll be subject to this courtroom judgment. Now, let's be real here. Let's be honest. This is a bit abstract, right? You, in your anger, have probably said some things you've regretted, right? If you're honest, unless you haven't lived long enough and you're thinking, I can't think of a time. Well, just give yourself time. <laughs> and when you grow up, you'll realize it. So you've said some stupid things and sinful things in your anger, right? But I, I doubt, I doubt, when you were just really, really upset, you totally lost your cool and started speaking Aramaic. <laughs> Raka! Right? You know, you're, 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 you're having this fight with your partner or you're having this fight with someone at work and you just go... You rocka! And everyone gasped. Oh, she said the R word. Oh my goodness. Call the courts rooms. Bring her in. This is a bit abstract. That's the point I'm getting at. But then, I guess, what's going on here? Well, the reality is, when you're really cheesed off at somebody, in the moment, you're not viewing them as an individual created in God's image. Deep down, they don't have any value in your eyes. At best, they're a complete blockhead. And, and in your anger, what do we do? We search for the most scathing words possible to insult the person who's hurt or offended us. And we just lay it on them. Let them have it. Or not. Or not, depending on how you're hardwired. You know, the, 
illustration, fight or flight. Fight or flight. Now, if you're the fight type, you're going to do what I just described. You're going to, you know, get your ammunition and just lay it on them. Or if you're the flight type, you can still, listen, hold sinful anger in your heart towards someone, but it's not really seen. It's not really noticeable in what's spoken by you. But oh, how you hate that person in your heart. Their very presence makes you stiffen up and just swell with disdain. Look, I'm not denying that the person that makes you angry is a jerk. But God cares about how you're going to respond to them. It's what's in your heart that matters. So there's three different aspects of murder. Anger, insult, and lastly, denunciation. And that comes in verse 22. Verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, it's where we get the word, it's more there. It's where we get the, what is more? When I say that word, what does it sound like? Moron, that's right. You moron will be liable to the hell of fire. What's going on there? If, if you've called someone a moron, oh man, you might as well just give up. So that's what's going on? I've called people morons. Jesus calls people morons, essentially. He calls the Pharisees morons. Did you know that? Jesus was, oh, you know, I'm just, I don't want to get in people's noses out of joint. I'm just lovey-dovey Jesus. It's not the Jesus that we read in the scriptures, even here in Matthew 23, if you read it. Jesus calls the Pharisees fools, more, morons. So is he breaking his own rule here? What's going on? No, it's, it's our, again, think of, the, it's the heart. It's the way we're viewing this person, right? When you say moron, or whatever you say, right? Essentially, in your heart, they are a worthless, good-for-nothing person. And, and here's the deal. You can be 100% murder-free, but in the end, still face the wrath of God because your life is marked by anger and resentment and rage. But, but let me say this as clearly as I can. The sin of anger and even hatred does not have to mark your life. Just like any other sin, you can repent of it, turn to God, and receive His forgiveness. The Bible displays from cover to cover that unlike us, God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Your sinful anger, just like any other sin, can be pardoned. You can repent today and receive God's forgiveness. He will wipe away the penalty for your sin and make you new. And he's able to do this because he sent his own son who died on a cross for people like you and me who sin in our anger, who struggle with bitterness and hate in our hearts. Friend, you don't have to be controlled by your anger or carry it around with you and be defined by it. Repent, embrace God's grace and be free of it. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. 
You don't have to be controlled by that. All right, let's look at verse 23 together because this next part, Jesus provides a visual, a parable of, of reconciliation, and it's quite interesting. Verse 23, he says, So if you're offering your gift at the altar, okay, hold on. We don't do that today. Don't do that today. Jesus has made the final perfect gift because, like I was just sharing with you. But sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem were still valid at the time of Jesus' ministry. And he gave this sermon while he's giving that. There's still temple. Like when Jesus, Jesus celebrated Passover. Okay, so like we, we know that Jesus didn't have to make an atonement. for Jesus didn't sin. But Jesus still celebrated Passover. So at the time that he's giving this, this temple sacrifices are still happening. And Matthew's writing decades later. But notice what he's getting at here. Verse 23 again. Before this chap seeks forgiveness from God, he must seek forgiveness from his brother. Look at verse 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. When you consider this idea of a brother being offended, certain offerings happening, and murder I wonder if Matthew wanted us to think back on the first murder recorded in the Bible, where there is an offended brother, offerings are being made, as well as increased anger, which eventually leads to homicide. I'm not talking about the story of anyone. I'm talking specifically about the story of Cain and Abel, right, in Genesis, which no doubt would have been very familiar to people back then. If you've never read the story, it's in Genesis 4. There's two brothers. One offers to God an acceptable sacrifice, right? The other offers God a fruit salad, basically. God's not happy with Cain's offering. So Cain becomes very bitter, angry at his brother. God says, hey, I'm paraphrasing now. Look, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. Turn now. Cain doesn't listen to God, murders his brother Abel. Do you know the story? Well, even, even today, many of us are very familiar with it. Seems like there could be a connection there, right? To what we were seeing in Matthew. Now, some of you might be thinking, yep, could be a connection, but why does that matter? Honestly, what, what's the payoff there? Well, think of it this way. In the saga of Cain and Abel, we're reminded not only how dangerous anger is, but if it's left unchecked and unresolved, what it potentially leads to. And in the case of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus enlarges the concept of anger so that it's tied to or equated with murder. Listen how 1 John puts it. 1 John says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Now listen carefully to what he says. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer 
has eternal life abiding in him. It's scary when you think how all hatred is ultimately the embryotic form of murder. Sinful anger is the embryo, which eventually gives birth to murder. And it may not be the physical act per se, but you've murdered someone in your heart. And listen, if you don't heed Jesus' words about your anger, you are in essence choosing to align yourself with Cain. You know, when, when we read ancient Jewish and, Trish, and Christian traditions, they exalt Abel as the model to follow. But Cain is demonized as an example to be shunned and avoided. So if we fail to hear, if we fail to hear and obey Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount and continue to harbor anger and bitterness against people, we take the side of Cain, who, as we know the rest of the story, roams the earth with God's curse on him. See, our inmost thoughts matter to God, friends. Who we are at the end of the day, our wholeness matters to the Lord, which means that there should be a consistency between our affections and our actions. Now, I want to continue on that theme because Jesus now turns from the sixth commandment to the seventh commandment. And once again, the Pharisees were trying to limit the scope of the commandment to merely external actions. But Jesus attacks the heart in verse 27. You've heard, verse 27, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus gets to the true meaning of this commandment, which is much deeper and wider than simply avoiding the physical act of adultery. You can hear a Pharisee, you know, yeah, you know, I, I hate that guy. I haven't murdered him, though. Yeah, you know, I look at these women, but, you know, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't cheated on my wife. You know, you hear, you hear that in society today. It's, it's, it's sick, too. It's, re it's really deplorable. Um, guys will say, oh, look, you know, I'm not, I'm not buying, I'm just shopping. That's disgusting. You know, that, that should, that's, we should deplore that. But Jesus is saying, even if you don't commit the bodily deed with your physical organs, you can still be guilty of sexual sin by means of your inner thoughts, your fantasies, and your desires. Now, a bit of a disclaimer here. I was thinking about it as I was writing this. It's kind of, the ordering of this is nice because some of you might have been checked out in the beginning about anger, but when I start talking about this, I feel like I'm going to have everyone here. So this is nice. Towards the latter end of the sermon, I've probably got everyone's attention or not. But a bit of a disclaimer here. Let me just say this. When you think about... Um, 
this idea of sex, it's not condemned altogether. It's a glorious and wonderful thing in the context of marriage. Okay? So it's not something that we're supposed to just shun altogether. Read the Song of Solomon, for goodness sakes. It's in the Bible. It's a good thing in the context of marriage. Another thing that I want to say as a disclaimer is that it's not a sin to be pretty or to be handsome or to be attracted to someone who is. Have you noticed in Christianity there's sort of this bizarre like, and, and what it creates, there's this bizarre separation of kind of like, all right, we have all these rules. We know that sex outside of marriage is bad. We don't cuss, chew, or hang with those who do, right? So then therefore, we have no sort of categories for, okay, well, can I be attracted to somebody? Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's normal. That's a good thing. And, and, and so I, I just want to give that disclaimer that that is a normal God-created thing. When you are attracted to someone, that's a good thing. That's fine. But it can become a sin if there is lustful intent, a desiring something that is not yours. Lust is desiring someone or something that is not to be had. Now listen carefully. If your life, and I say desires there, because yes, the context is talking about physical, sexual desires, but I would argue, and again, I know this is, this is, this is general, okay? General speaking, when we think of that, we think, oh, well, it's usually the blokes. can be the ladies, but it's usually the blokes that struggle with this. And that tends to be true, but that's not, a, that's not 100%. It's not 100%. But then when we hear something like this, we think, oh, wow, you know, I'm not sure as a lady how I, where I really fit into this. If there's this, the, the word he uses there for intent is epithumeo. It's a Greek word, and you're like, what does that mean? Uh, Tony didn't believe I knew Greek. She was cleaning off my desk and she like sweeped off all this Greek stuff and she goes, oh, he does know Greek. I said, see, I wasn't lying, Tony. Or I just put the Greek stuff there to make it look like I was reading it or whatever. And I'm like, I don't know what it says. But, but the Greek word epithumeo is the idea of desiring. Okay? Yes, it's connected to sexuality, but it's not only that. Epithumeo is pretty broad. And so as a lady, potentially particularly if you're steeped in romantic novels and things, you can find your heart, epithumeo as a word, desiring unnatural and sinful things that may not be necessarily physical, but you're desiring, oh, I wish I had a man like that that I'm reading about in this book. And believe me, there's plenty of racy novels out there without having to name them that are popular and made into movies today. Okay, now, I don't want to start naming them because you say, oh, good, I haven't read that one. I feel good. Because then you see what you're doing? By doing that, who are we acting like? We're acting like Pharisees. And, and remember, I said this before to you guys, there's a little Pharisee in all of us just waiting to grow up. Okay? So I don't want to name, you know, 5,000 Shades of Grey and all these other things. Okay? But, listen, we can, you, it's, I think, I think there's a propensity that we can read this and say, yeah, I'm off the hook. It's interesting, Don Carson, very well-respected scholar, 
translates, looks at this, not so much as the man lusting after the woman, but the man trying to entice the woman after him. Maybe not necessarily in a lustful, uh, sexual way per se, but in really this wanting and this desiring of him. So he's, he's taking advantage of her in that way. I think that's quite interesting. Not so sure that I agree with that, but you know, woe to the man that disagrees with Don Carson because he's the man. But, no, I, but I think there's a good principle there. And, and I think sometimes we read this as just, and we kind of box it in too much on, well, this is the blokes. But listen carefully. If your life is marked by habitual sexual sin, I think epithumeo, that desiring, if your life is marked by unrepentant sexual sin, you're going to hell. Not my words. And I'm not quoting some angry dude picketing outside of a church somewhere saying that. This is what Jesus says. I'm not quoting some intense Puritan from 300 years ago. Jesus says that. I mean, think about it this way, friends. Every time a vice, there's a vice list. Do you know what I mean by that? Every time it says, okay, well, who are the people that don't go to heaven? And it lists these people. Not, not if they've committed this sin, but it lists, it's, it's their who they are. Does that make sense? You mark them by this. Every time there's, it be it, be it Galatians 5, or in Romans, or in 1 Corinthians 6, or in Revelation 21, when it talks about those people that are outside of the new heavens and new earth. You tracking with me? Every time, every time it names that list, nearly every time sexual morality is at the top of that list. But it's always on the list. Always. Do you feel the weight of that? That's why we can't just blow off. And, and how about this? In Matthew 18, right? If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. And then if he won't listen to you, tell it to the church. Where do we see that applied? We see it happening in the church in Corinth. And what does it involve? There is a man that is having sex outside of marriage in a very dodgy way, but he's doing these things, and then he, and what does Paul say? Hey, just keep loving on him. Just keep loving on him. You know what? That's where you're supposed to be. Aren't we at the end of the day? That's our job, right? Just love God. Just love God. Love God, love others. That's our job. Now he says, kick that guy out of there. He's like a cancer to your church so that you can save his soul. A yeast works through the whole batch of dough. Now again, I think Corinthians 6 is a great example where it says it lists sexual morality. It lists those who used to be involved in homosexuality, drunkards, etc., etc. And it says, you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were cleansed, you were justified. You used to be like that. So I don't want you to feel this sword being thrust into you right now that's saying, if you've ever done those things, you're out. No way. Therefore, there is now for no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But listen, Jesus is saying, if this marks your life, if this marks your life, you will not go to heaven. And we can look at all the rest of the New Testament examples of that. 
Verse 29. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Now, hyperbolic language there, otherwise there'd be a bunch of us with no eyes and no right arms. Okay? There's been some people that, um, even in church history, have, you know... um, flagellated themselves over these verses. They've taken them literally because they don't want to be sinning, which I think that's a good intention. And so there's self-mutilation. Some people even took some of this to the far extreme of, um, yeah, becoming eunuchs, Um, like Origen in church history. Do you know who Origen is? Um, So he took this to the full extreme. And it's easy for us to go, what a crazy wacko guy. He's a guy that actually cares about holiness. So let's be careful that we don't just throw stones at him very fast. But, but Jesus is saying, you should take this sin so severe, so serious that in a sense, again, I think hyperbolic, it's, over, it's exaggeration to drive him a point. You should be willing to gouge out your eye and cut off your right hand. That you're going to have to make sacrifices in your life because you take this so serious. And if you're, verse 30, and if you're, right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members. And think of the wholeness here. He's, he said it twice. Remember, that I told you there's this idea of wholeness in the Sermon on the Mount? Then your whole body be thrown into hell. Your whole body be thrown into hell. Now, notice there's this focus there on the, yes, there's the focus on the hand, but there's a focus on the eyes as well. There's a focus on the eyes of coveting someone, something that's not yours. And I would just suggest that there's a difference between looking, so it's okay to be physically attracted to somebody, and lusting. And I think we all know the difference. There's a difference between looking and lusting. What does James say? When tempted, right, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. There's a difference there. And I say that because I think there's a tendency with guys, and fellas, I'm going to pick on you here for a second. I think there's a tendency with guys to say this, and it's really weak. There's a tendency to guys say, well, I wouldn't have such a problem with lust if the, if the women didn't dress so seductively. Remember, after his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. It's your fault. You are the scumbag in that scenario that needs to repent. Right? This isn't the Robin Williams moment where I come up and say, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. James says, it's your fault. It's exactly your fault. I think there's a propensity in Christian men, particularly, to say, well, you know, I'm really struggling with lust lately. Well, why is that? Well, have you seen the way that the girls at our church dress? Come on, man. Part of the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You need to see that sister as a sister, like, it's kind of awkward to say this, but if you have an attractive brother or sister, right? My, my, it's like, it's like you want to throw up, you say, my sister is attractive, right? This is weird to say that, you know? 
because she looks like me. Um, <laughs> but my sister is attractive. My sister's at April, right? My sister is attractive. But, I, but that's as far as it goes, okay? That's as far as it goes. But I can acknowledge, hey, she's, a, she's, a, she's an attractive, she's a pretty girl. She is. But I don't, I don't push it any further than that. And in the same way, you can acknowledge that, hey, there's some of these sisters are pretty and they're attractive, but you don't push it any further than that, and that's when you cross the line into lust. And, and don't blame it on, oh, well, they're not dressing modestly enough. Now, sisters, I'd say at the same time, it would behoove you to say, okay, is what I'm wearing going to be appropriate, and is it going to be a stumbling block to my brothers? Because if it is, you're enticing them to sin, and you are sinning by doing that. So I, I, I whooped on the guys, but I'd say at the same time, ladies, it, is it incumbent upon you, it's, it would behoove you to think through, is what I'm wearing appropriate? And not just at church, by the way. Let's not microman. let's not like get this just into a pigeonhole of, well, I don't dress this way at church, but you know, when I go out on the weekends, you know, that's a different story. No, no, no. Is, is what you're doing, is it matched that? Job said that he's made a covenant with his eyes not to look lustfully upon a virgin. And I would say for the guys in here, the, the way that I think this has helped me a bit has been when you know there's a pretty woman coming your way who's dressed in a way that would you know that your mind would race to things that are lustful and inappropriate. Instead of doing this, if you've ever been in the airport, you can watch guys. It might freak you out. But if a pretty girl walks down, all the guys are... <laughs> you know, like the cartoons, the mouth drop. You know, and I don't mean to... Ma- I, I, know, I mean, it's funny because I guess the way I'm doing it, but it's, it's sin, actually. And, and you don't want to know what those dudes are thinking about. None of us would be laughing. And, and so... Fellas, as a Christian man, when there is a lady coming and, you know, like I said, that give that scenario again, coming your way, you can bounce, think eyes, remember? Starting with the eyes, bouncing your eyes, I call it. Turning away from that. Because you know, you can almost hear the heels coming or whatever it is, and you just, you know, you know it's coming your way. I know the ladies are like, really? No, trust me. The guys know, every, guy, every dude in here knows exactly what I'm talking about. Or you're at, a, you're at some location and you, you know. And that's the moment where you have to just turn your head, bounce your eyes. When you're driving, if there's a jogger coming your way, keep your eyes on the road, turn your head. In, 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 unless, unless you don't think Jesus is serious here about sexual sin and the patterns of that. Unless you just think, hey, you know, he's lovey-dovey Jesus and he knows I'm a dude, so that's just who I am, right? It's not the way Jesus talks. It's not the way Jesus teaches. And so I just encourage you, you know, if you go to um, Jerusalem today, the rabbis, when they go to the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall, right, there's a lot of people, there's an entrance to the Wailing Wall or Western Wall, and when they make their way to the Western Wall, some, there's two different entrances to it, but a lot of them, 
and even when they walk around the old city of Jerusalem, when they see Western ladies, oftentimes they just keep their heads down like this, right? Because they, they, they know, hey, they're probably reading Job, thinking, I'm not going to look lustfully. And, and again, those are, those are rabbis. But I think the principle's there. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? And, and ladies, I would just say an encouragement to you in closing is, again, be aware of what you're reading. Be aware of the desires that you have. You know, you, you might say, well, I'm not. I'm not trying to make, you know, I'm, I'm just having, I'm not trying to make someone stumble. But, okay, fair enough, but just be aware. If you, even, particularly some of you ladies that are now single or widowed, be aware of looking that epithumeo, those longful desires to have those, and you're willing to sin in order to, to get that desire filled. Does that make sense? Be aware of that. So I know this is really sensitive stuff, but I can't just read or skip over this when Jesus says, and if your right hand calls you sin, gouge you out, otherwise you're going to go to hell. And I'm like, hey guys, God loves you so much. That's all I want to talk about this morning. It's not, it's not I, we have to be clear here. We have to think about what the whole New Testament teaches, right? Amen? And let me say this. If you have sinned sexually in the past, it's not the unforgivable sin. Just like anger, you can be forgiven of that, washed, cleansed, made anew. It's not the unforgivable sin. You can turn to Jesus now if you're in that sin. He offers hope and forgiveness. Jesus never sinned, never lusted after a woman, never enticed anyone, went to Calvary, made a perfect sacrifice for people who have sinned in those areas, like all of us, so that if we look to Jesus, we can have his perfect righteousness, one that's never sinned. That's good news. Amen? A lot to think about. Let's pray. Lord, this is... I, I pray that after a message like this, people wouldn't get hung up on maybe something that could sound confusing or, or maybe even too judgmental, maybe too legalistic. Uh, Lord, give us insight and wisdom how to live these principles out. There's principles, Lord, from this text of which I couldn't even have time to hit on. And Lord, you're already stirring in people's minds and hearts now of areas they need to change and grow in. Um, Lord, help us to be a church that is not filled of anger and rage or sexual morality, but one that is pure with our minds, our hearts, and our thoughts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to take a time.